So if you haven't been with us, we've been walking through this series called His Story. Uh, so grateful for Drew uh, stepping in last week uh, and uh, the microphone cut out, so I wasn't able to listen to the sermon myself on the podcast, but it sounds like he did a great job. And Jacob, a couple weeks ago, filling in for me. Uh, but we're continuing this story as we look at the Bible, how it all fits together in this one epic tale uh, from creation to eternity, a love story of, of God and his people. Today we're going to wrap up Genesis chapter 3. We've spent four parts, uh, four, four chapters, if you will, in our sermon series on this chapter that deals with sin and the fall. Um, to remind you where we've been, I know everybody's favorite part, we've got to remember these motions, so this cements into your brain. So if you can do this with me, we've got God, okay, you point up. We've got creation, speaks everything to existence. We've got the fall, okay. And we've got promise, and that's just your two pinkies together. He makes this promise. So we said that God, let's do it once all together. So we got God, creation, fall, and promise. Excellent. You guys are awesome. So we, what we said is in the beginning there was only God, and he is good, and he's perfect, and he's holy, and he's eternal. And then he creates everything in the universe, and it's all good because he's good. But then Adam and Eve, they make this decision to rebel against God, to choose to trust themselves and depend on themselves instead of him. And this fracture comes into the universe and separates God and man. That's what we talked about two weeks ago. Death means separation. Man and God are now separated. But we see, and Jacob preached on it three weeks ago, that right in the midst of the curse itself, God makes a promise. And he says, there is going to come a seed from the woman. It's a singular word there. The seed of the woman. She's going to have a bunch of kids, a bunch of offspring, but one of these seeds is going to crush the head of the seed of the serpent. The sin and death is going to be defeated by one who's going to come down the road. And we look at that and we see this promise that God's going to provide a way. And what we want to look at today is there's this beautiful little, it's just one little verse at the end of Genesis chapter 3, but we've got to catch it. Because the implications for how he's going to provide a way back to him are already being woven through the fabric of Genesis chapter 3. And one other thing, kind of a business thing, I just wanted to point out to you before we really get into this. Um, In your bulletins, uh, there is an outline that we provide each week. It's usually got some blanks in there. Try to make sure you're staying awake and filling in those blanks. And at the end of each one of those, one thing I just wanted to highlight was we have what we call questions for the car ride. And the intent of that is simply as we don't want to just be passive listeners to this. We want to take this, this message that God's giving us from his word and go, okay, now what? And, and, and to think about the implications for us this week. Because if we're not applying this, if we're not doing what we're learning, then it's pointless. And so these questions are just intended as you're driving home, or maybe you're taking the kids to school, or you're talking with your spouse, to look at these questions and dig a little bit deeper in together, asking what did we just you know, hear from God's word, and what effect does it have us, on us for us, our lives? So just a resource I wanted to make you, uh, remind you of that we have in your bulletins. And... Um, I, I want to start out with some confession here, just between you and, and me. Um, I have a guilty pleasure in my life, and it comes in the form of romantic comedies. Um, it's, just, that's just, it's just good to get that off my chest. Uh, I love the rom-com, even love the rom-drom. I'm in both ways. And one of the things that you always find in a romantic comedy is they always, almost always, center around a lover's dilemma. Okay, in other words... It's always, I love you, but, dot, dot, dot. And there's something that's come between them that they have 125 minutes to figure out. Uh, well, probably an hour and 25 minutes in, in those. 
and, and to figure out, and they usually do, of course, that's why it's a romantic comedy. Uh, in, 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 for example, Sleepless in Seattle. They, I love you, but we are separated by geography. They live on opposite coasts. And then the sequel, I love you, but you're not who you say you are, okay? And then you go to Sweet Home Alabama. I love you, but you were born on the wrong side of the tracks, right? I'm a city slicker. You're a country bumpkin. Or what about when Harry met Sally? Classic rom-com. I love you, but can we, do we jump this hurdle of being just friends? How about Roxanne? Poor Steve Martin. I love you, but you've got a huge schnoz, right? Can't get over the nose thing. That's super shallow Roxanne. I love you, but while you were sleeping, you're in a coma, okay? Really found that to be an inhibitive uh, thing in a relationship when one of them's in a vegetative state. And then finally, my best friend's wedding. I love you, but you're already engaged. Classic rom-com. But I always love how they make the person that they're engaged to a total jerk. That just makes the, the fallout easier. As you can tell, I spent way too much time thinking about that this week. That's what happens when I'm va- on vacation. In the same way... There's, there's a relationship between us and God, but there's this dilemma. There's something, it's I love you, but, and there's this thing in the midst of it called sin and death that's preventing us from having this relationship with God. Now, just like God created physical laws to govern the universe, okay? Wiley Coyote always taught us about that, right? What goes up must come down. We know laws, physical laws like the second law of thermodynamics, everything shutting down. Our own bodies testify to that, right? And just like there are physical laws that govern the physical universe, there are spiritual laws that govern the relationship between God and man. And just like understanding physical laws helps us make sense of this world. Don't jump off a cliff because you're going to fall. Don't gargle bleach because you'll get sick and die. Understanding these spiritual laws help us make sense of our relationship with God, of life and death, from both God's point of view and ours. And we're going to see this morning how just like in those romantic comedies, we have a dilemma that prevents God and man from engaging in this loving and intimate relationship. So we're going to look at three things this morning. We're going to look at man's dilemma from his point of view. We're going to look at God's dilemma, what this looks like from God's point of view. And then finally, we're going to see God's solution symbolized in the end of Genesis chapter 3. So let's dig in here. Uh, Man's dilemma, first of all. We have a twofold problem from our point of view. Number one, or A, we have something that we don't want, and that's the penalty of sin. None of us want that, but we have it. The other side is that we need something we don't have, and that's perfection. And not just being better than your neighbor, but a God-level perfection. So this is our dilemma, that we have something we don't want, and we need something we don't have. And it's the, the, first we want to look at the sin penalty. Just like in sports, if you do something wrong, there's a penalty, right? If I double dribble in basketball, the other team gets the ball, okay? It's a, it's a rule, there's a penalty, and there's a consequence for that infraction. Uh, I, I love the illustration in hockey, okay? There's the penalty box, right? And in hockey, when, you've, when there's a violation, one of, the, one of the consequences is that you have to go inside of this penalty box. And they actually call it, the nickname is the sin bin, Okay, so that works out well for our analogy today. And depending on the infraction, it will determine how long you spend in said sin bin or penalty box. Okay, the harsher the crime, the longer the time. That's how they roll. Okay, now let's pretend for a minute. Let's go back in time in our brains to ancient Rome. In ancient Rome, there was this when, when an accused criminal was found to be guilty. They would, they would make this, what they called a certificate of death. 
okay? Now, on this certificate, there are two things. The first thing was the offense. They would write on the certificate what they did. And then number two, they would write the required payment, what they need, what they owe because of what they did, all right? Now, both of those were written on the certificate, and it was nailed to the prison door where that person was to remain. And that person would stay in prison, and the certificate would stay on the door until the sentence had been paid. And then it was taken down, and they would take this uh, certificate to the authorities and show them that indeed the, the wrong had been righted. That, and they, what they would do is they'd write canceled, or they'd stamp paid in full over top of both the offense and the required payment. And the prisoner was set free. Now you see, you and I have incurred a debt, a certificate of debt. And the offense is that we've sinned. What Romans 8 calls the law of sin and death. And because we've sinned, the required payment is laid out very clearly in Scripture. Ezekiel 18.20, the soul who sins shall, not might, shall die. We know that from Romans 6. The wages of sin is what? It's death. It's death. So the question is, can we pay that penalty? Like, can we get ourselves out of jail? Well, in a sense, yes, we can pay that penalty, but what's the payment if we're to pay it? Remember what we said death is? Death means separation. And we saw the three different kinds of separation. If we sin against God, we, must, we are first spiritually separated from him. And then because of that, one day we will die physically and our bodies will be separated from our spirits. And then because of that, our spirit is sinful and it will remain eternally separated from God in the lake of fire. So yes, we can pay that penalty ourselves, but we will be paying it for the rest of eternity. And none of us want to pay this debt but by definition, it must be paid. We owe it. So, our twofold dilemma, we have something we don't want, which is our sin penalty. And yet, even, even, let's just say, somehow, we could pay this thing off. We, we, could, we could pay the price. We still wouldn't be able to live with God, because the dilemma is twofold. And the second thing is, we need something that we don't have. And that's perfection. Now, we don't just need to get better. It's not just like, well, we need to, you know, I need to lie a little bit less. I just need to improve a little bit. In order to be acceptable before God, we must be holy as he is holy. You understand what that means? Uh, I mean, Hebrews 12, 14 says, those who are not holy, and the word holy, it means perfect, without sin. Those who are not holy will not see the Lord. We cannot see God. We cannot have a relationship with God unless our holiness is like his holiness. Anyone in here have that level of holiness? Good. None of you guys are liars. All right. So we, none of us have that level of holiness. So how do we, two things, get rid of our sins and gain a perfection that's equal to God's? You see the dilemma we're in? And then we flip it around and look at things from God's point of view, God's dilemma. Now, to understand God's dilemma, we need to understand two of his, his attributes, his characteristics, that at first seem to be in utter contradiction to one another. And the first one is that God is perfectly just. God is perfectly just. We've said it before. Uh, God is holy, or he's perfect. He's, he's without sin. And part of that means, what, what it means to be just, uh, it means to be lawful, or right, or, or honest, or, or the word fair. And this is who God is. God isn't just just. He loves justice. Look at Psalm eleven seven. For the righteous Lord, the right one, loves justice. 
He loves to be right. He loves to be fair. It's, it's knit into the fabric of who God is. Deuteronomy 10, 17. He is the great God, the mighty and awesome God who shows no partiality and cannot be bribed. God treats everyone the same. You can't pay off God. You, you can't slip him a 20, give him a wink, and hope that he lets you off even though he didn't let your neighbor off. He judges everyone the same. We're all in the same playing field. So what does it mean? What, you think about in terms of a judge, okay? When we think about justice, we often put it in a courtroom context. So what does a good or just judge do? Well, well he, he has a consistent standard, right? It doesn't mean you treat everyone the same, but it means that you're fair and you're just. So, for example, um, if I have a cookie jar and Kim steals a cookie from my cookie jar and Jenny steals a cookie from my cookie jar, okay, and I'm their parents in some bizarre world, um, what is just? Is it just to punish Kim and then give Jenny the entire jar of cookies, right? Jenny's like, yeah, absolutely. Uh, no, that is not, that would not be a just judgment for what they've done. They've both done the same thing, and again, we know and as parents, and, and we know that, that judging justly doesn't always mean the same treatment for everybody. There's a lot of factors but when it comes to God's standards, he holds them the same forever, everyone. And everyone who sins shall die. Now here on earth, people get away with crimes all the time, right? There's probably a bunch of you in this room today who have gotten away with crimes, right? I see you. I see you. And, and maybe you can trick your parents or your friends or, or your pastor. You can trick each other. We can hide from each other. But we know that that doesn't work with God, right? Ecclesiastes 12. God will judge us for everything we do, including every secret thing, whether good or bad. Continue our hockey analogy. You're not slipping one past the goalie when it comes to God. He sees it all and he judges it all. Every sin will come under judgment and it will be judged fairly so because god is perfect we can count on him being absolutely fair and we like that part right ever since we were kids we're always that's not what fair we want everything to be fair so we like the idea in, in, in that extent that god is fair and yet here's the bad news perfect justice demands that sin be punished with a penalty that's equal to the offense so if a judge was to say to a murderer I'm going to give you 20 minutes of community service and you better say you're sorry for killing someone. No one would say that's just. No one would say that is a fair punishment for the crime that they've committed. So just like we said, the penalty and debt of our sin is death. And you and I must be separated from God for as long as he is holy. That is the just punishment for what we've done. But here's the good news. We haven't mentioned the other attribute of God that creates this dilemma for him. So on the one hand, he is perfectly just. Perfectly just. Eternally just. But on the other hand, he's also perfectly loving. 1 John 1, 4, 8 says, uh, it says God is love. Now notice here it doesn't say God loves. He does. But it doesn't say God loves. He is love. By definition, by his very nature, God is love. And he's already demonstrated that to us. We've already seen that in the first three chapters of Genesis. We saw in the way that he created the world. We said in First Timothy, God who richly gives us all we need for our enjoyment. And God lavished his love on us when he created this wonderful universe for us. He gave us everything that we need, 
Remember we said he gives us these tastes and these fragrances and these sights and he creates this amazing world for us. And then he goes beyond that and he loves us and wants to engage with us. He wants to engage with Adam and Eve in a relationship. The God of the universe, the holy God of the universe wants to stoop down and have a relationship with these tiny little humans and to know them and to be known by them. So he's this loving God and he wants the same thing with you and I. And even after, even after Adam and Eve broke his heart, rebelled against him, spat in his face, he never has and never will stop loving them. Psalm 136, give thanks to the God of gods. His faithful love endures for how long? Five minutes? An hour? Until we tick him off enough? His love endures forever. He never stops loving us. So, so you have this loving God and this just God, and what this creates is, is what we call a paradox. Okay, it's a paradox, and if you don't know what the word paradox really means, this helps me. It's a statement that is self-contradictory because it, is often, it often contains two statements that are both true, but in general cannot both be true at the same time. In other words, it's, it's a self-contradiction. So, I'll give you the example. If Pinocchio was to say, my nose will grow now, Okay, that is a paradox. Why? Because what ha- when does Pinocchio's nose grow? When he lies, right? So here's the problem for Pinocchio. If it's true, if it's true that he's, his nose is now going to grow, then his nose can't grow because his nose only grows when he's lying, right? He's telling the truth. But on the other hand, if he's lying, his nose should grow, but then it wouldn't be a lie, right? Yeah, I know. Let's just, let's just move on, all right? Trust me. <laughs> So, so here, here is the paradox. Here's, here's with God. It'll probably be a little bit easier to understand. So God is 100% just. He must and always punishes sin as it deserves with death. Every time, no exception. But on the other hand, he's also 100% loving. And he, and he desires, 2 Peter 3, 9, that none perish, but that all would repent and come to have a relationship with him. So how can both of these things be true? God is just as just as he is loving. So how can he be 100% loving and 100% just at the same time? I love this verse in 2, Corinthians, or 2 Samuel excuse me, 14, 14. All of us must die eventually. Our lives are like water spilled out on the ground which cannot be gathered up again. There's his justice. But then we look at his love and he says, but God does not sweep, just sweep away life. Instead he devises ways to bring us back when we have been separated from him. So yes, God is 100% just, but Samuel shows us here, God has a solution. There is a way for both of these things about God to be 100% true, where justice and mercy kiss, as the psalmist says. Here's God's solution, all right? This is where it gets good. So first of all, on the one hand, God rejects man's covering. Okay, now we see this. We're going to go back to our story here, Genesis 3, and we're going to look at just these last four verses today. And we're remembering when, when Adam and Eve sinned, or what, the, what was the first thing that they did? They sewed fig leaves for themselves, right? They felt exposed. They, they, they felt exposed, and so the, their knee-jerk reaction was to try to cover their own sins, to create a covering for themselves. But did that hide their sin from God? Of course not. We just said that God sees everything, even the secret thing. God, 1 Samuel says, people judge by outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. You can't just change the outside and hope that God doesn't notice what's going on underneath in our hearts. And God rejected Adam and Eve's attempts at self-improvement. And what's he's teaching them? 
is that they can do nothing outwardly or inwardly to remove their sin problem. And just like Adam and Eve, you and I can do nothing to remove our sin problem. But we sure try, don't we? We go to great lengths to sew some fancy fig leaf suits to try to trick God into thinking we're good. I love this. Pastor John McGrath, he, he defined sewing fig leaves this way. He said, covering up what we don't want ourselves and others to see so we look good and feel good. Does that resonate with you? It does with me. Times in your lives when, when, when you want others to just think you're good, when you're trying to convince yourself that you're good, that you look good, that you feel good. And so we play these games. And if I can be real with you for a second, I think one of the places that we do that the most is right here, right now church. Okay, are you tracking with me? Church is one of the easiest places to try and hide from God. And often we come here just to feel good about ourselves and to look good to others. We go, man, oh man, check out Frank. He's here every single week. Guy doesn't miss. And what a tithe, he doesn't even tithe. He only keeps a tithe, right? He gives 90% of it away. And of his gross, not even just his net. What a good guy. And then we, we kind of learn the, the routines. Okay, this is a song we clap on. I guess not at Pencil Grace usually. Uh, you know, we, uh, is this the one we raise? We look over at Blair. Do we raise our hands on this one? Okay, we can raise our hands on this one. And we just kind of learn the routines and, and learn the game. In the meantime, we're simply covering up what we don't want ourselves or others to see. Now, obviously, I'm not saying it's wrong to go to church, right? Don't bite the hand that feeds you. Um, but often... Often, our motivation for coming is sowing fig leaves. And unfortunately, God rejected Adam and Eve's fig leaves, and he rejects ours. And listen, all the church attendance in the world, all the Bible reading in the world, all the tithing, all the helping of old ladies across the streets cannot remove our sin, and it cannot give us God's level of perfection. It's... (laughs) He, we are sinners, and as sinners, you know, the only thing we can do is sin. That's it. Even our, our, even our righteous deeds are like filthy rags in his sight. And so, no, the solution is not outward covering, and it cannot come from us, but this is the good news. While he's rejected our covering, God has provided his own covering. And you look at this, while God is just and couldn't accept Adam and Eve's fig leaves, he is also love. And so in love, he supplies an acceptable covering for them. And there's this little tiny verse, and it's an easy one to overlook in the light of this chapter. But if you look at Genesis 3, 21, it says, Then the Lord God made clothing from animal skins for Adam and his wife. Now, if you look at what's going on here and the implications within, it's enormous. Okay, this is about to change the landscape of human history. And it's a beautiful moment of a loving provision from God. But I'm also sure, in a lot of ways, if you think about what's going on here, it's a terrible moment, okay? When I was in missionary training uh, with New Tribes Mission, we spent some time, there's me back in the yellow, okay, of course, and um, we, we did this thing called jungle camp, where we had to go out and live for a few weeks in the woods, kind of learning what it was like to live off the land so that we could be tribal missionaries. And so we go out there, we're doing all these crazy things, and one of the things they had us do was uh, learn how to slaughter chickens, all right? So we take these chickens, and a bunch of Bible school kids who had grown up in the suburbs, and they hand us these chickens, and they, we took this, this stump and these two nails and they said, you put the chicken, you know, neck through the nails, you know, area and then the head's just kind of hanging out there and then you chop the head off. 
All right, so this one girl, and remind you, we've got this whole audience here as we're taking turns, and it's not just the missionaries, but it's also their kids, okay? Four-year-olds, five-year-olds, six-year-olds, you know, whatever. And so this one girl, uh, Kristen, one of my friends, she, she gets her chicken and she puts it up on the stump, and she goes to hack at it. Well, she misses the neck and just gets it right on the body, okay? She starts to panic. She doesn't know what to do, so she starts hacking away at this chicken, and all these missionary kids are just like eyes like saucers, jaws hanging to the floor, like blood and feathers are just going everywhere. It's this huge thing. They told her, you can't be a missionary. You're going to have to stay home. Uh, and, and so, so there's this, this, just this, this, this horrible sight of witnessing death firsthand, and you put yourself in Adam and Eve's shoes for a minute. They have never experienced death before. And up to this point, they and all the everyone's lived forever. And I don't know, Scripture doesn't tell us if, if they're witnessing the killing firsthand. But what's implied, if God's covering them with animal skin, the animal is now dead, right? And so you imagine, and I don't, I don't want to be overly graphic here, but you imagine Adam and Eve watching this happen. And the blood being spilled out from this animal. And seeing this, this beast's last gasps for breath. And the eyes shutting for the last time, the finality of it. What a jarring experience. What a, what a, a horrible thing. And God is, is making the awful reality of death understandable to them immediately. To, to show them this graphic object lesson. That look, sin brings death. And this animal lost its life so that you could be covered. And this teaches Adam and Eve, and it teaches you and I, two realities of our sin and what it takes to be reconciled back to our maker. First one is substitution. Now, we don't know. It just says an animal. I just, this was the the image that I found. We don't know that it was a lamb or a ram. Normally, a man or a woman die for their own sin. But God's showing them a principle here that perhaps there is a way that he would accept the death of another, perhaps an animal, in man's place, what we would call a substitute. And look, that animal didn't do anything, right? Imagine being that animal, and you're just hanging out, doing animal things. All of a sudden, God comes walking towards you. Hey, God, what's, what are you, you know, and all of a sudden, you're wiped out. You did nothing, and you die in the place to cover someone else. What would that be like? It was a life for a life. In fact, it was a guilty life for an innocent life, and God is showing how his just demands for death and yet his loving desires for a relationship could coexist. And you remember, again, back to Genesis 3.15, this deliverer is going to come and defeat sin and death, and perhaps he's showing them here a picture for how this thing is going to go down, for how he's going to be able to make a relationship with them once again. So the first thing we see is substitution. The second thing is an atonement. Okay, atonement. Now, this is just a big fancy spiritual word, word, and we'll break it down here. It basically means a covering or an exchange or reconciliation, which I actually like all three of those definitions. I think they work hand in hand together to describe this. Leviticus 17.11 says, For the life of the flesh is in the blood. And we'll see this. As we walk through this story in the Old Testament, blood is absolutely central to the Israelites and their relationship with God. And it's a symbol. The, life is a, the blood is the symbol of life. And it says, I've given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by life. So we walk through these three words here. 
The blood covers man's sin, which is symbolized in the animal skins covering Adam and Eve's nakedness. And secondly, it's one life that's being exchanged for another. This animal's life is exchanged for the life of Adam and Eve. And thirdly, why did that happen? It was to make reconciliation, to restore the relationship between God and man. So that when God looks at man, he doesn't see their sin, but they're covered. And he can view man as right and acceptable to him. Now, I want to be clear here. An animal is not a sufficient sacrifice for our, on our behalf. Remember, the payment is eternal. And an animal's not eternal. And we don't just need a covering. We need God's perfection. And an animal does not give us God's holiness. Therefore, this covering is not eternally sufficient, nor is it perfect. But God is giving us a picture, a picture of him accepting a perfect sacrifice to cover our sins. And one thing, as we close out this chapter, just a little side note here, that we see, we see God's mercy and his love, even in judgment. I want you to watch this. The last three verses, Genesis 3, 22. Then the Lord God said, Look, the human beings have become like us, knowing both good and evil. What if they reach out, take from the tree of life, and eat it? Then they will live forever. So here in the garden is this tree of life. And he goes, If they stay here in the garden, they're going to continually eat from this tree, and they'll live forever. And, and you see, we said that as long as, as man has access to the tree of life, he can live forever, but the penalty of sin is death. So they can't have access to this any longer. And yet, even as strange as it sounds, I believe this is an act of mercy. Remember Jacob, a couple weeks ago, said that a part of the curse, the pain of childbearing and, and the toil from the ground, that even in that, there is this, this mercy from God to show us this is not life as it was intended to be and to give our hearts a longing for the other side of the Jordan, for a relationship with God. And I think even here, this is an act, God cutting them off from the tree of life. And this is what happens, verse 23. So the Lord God banished them from the garden of Eden, and he sent Adam out to cultivate the ground from which he'd been made. After sending them out, the Lord God stationed mighty cherubim to the east of the garden of Eden, and he placed a flaming sword that flashed back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. So he blocks it off. You can't come back here, but you think about it. What if sinful man would have been able to continue to come back and eat of this tree and live forever? Every human being who had ever lived would still be alive. All, all, all the most vile people of human history, Judas and Herod and, and, and Stalin and Hitler and whoever invented gluten, right? They're all there. They're all there. And, and, and God is allowing, he says, no, in, in his mercy, and oftentimes, and I want to say this sensitively, and I don't have the knowledge of God, but we see in scripture there are times when God snatches people from this earth and it's the best thing for them and it's the best thing to do. And I think God, in his, in his sovereign wisdom and in his sovereign mercy, cuts us off from the tree of life. But while God is allowing the consequences of death to take place here, we must die physically, so he connects us from the li- disconnects us from the life source. The entire time, God's got one thing on his mind, and that's how to make a way back to us. And he's thinking beyond the grave, focusing on his plan to deliver man from his eternal death, the lake of fire. So, again, we've got man's dilemma that we have something we don't want. We have the sin penalty. We must die. We need something we don't have, and that's God's level of perfection. And from God's side, on the one hand, he's perfectly just, and he must punish all sin with death, but on the other hand, he's perfectly loving, and he wants a relationship with us, so what's his solution? And we've seen from this picture in Genesis 3 that while he rejects our fig leaves, that he rejects our own attempts to cover our own sin, 
He provides his own covering as symbolized in the shedding of the blood of this innocent lamb. Now, of course, you and I, we know the rest of the story, um, unless this is your first day inside of a church. Um, we know that Jesus is that perfect sacrifice, that, it, that he is able to be, you know, you see in Hebrews 9.12, it says, uh, talks about Jesus, says, with his own blood, with Jesus' own blood, not the blood of goats and calves, because remember, goats and calves are not eternal, and they're not perfect. They cannot be a substitution for us, but Jesus can. He entered the most holy place once for all time and secured our redemption forever. Ephesians 1.7, he is so rich in kindness and grace that he purchased our freedom with the blood of his son and forgave our sins. You see, Jesus is the only sufficient sacrifice because he is eternal. So he can pay for our eternal consequence toward an eternal God eternally because he is God. And remember we said we don't just need the payment for the sin penalty, but we also need God's level of perfection. Well, who else can provide it but God himself? And Jesus is God, so he is eternal and he is perfect. He is the one way that we can come back and have a relationship with God. And some of us here in this, in this room this morning, we're hiding, okay? We're making fig leaves for ourselves. And we're trying to, to, to hide our sins from each other. And if we're honest with ourselves, it's, it's not working. And we see that, that in this, and in our attempt to cover up our own sins... Is there freedom there? Is there real freedom there? And if we're honest with ourselves, we know in our hearts that there's not. There's not freedom, and it's not working. We cannot experience life and peace by trying to cover our own sins, by trying to just to pretend like everything's going well, just to not show people the mess, the wreck, the sinner that we really are. And what's driving this is a thing called pride. Remember, that's what caused Satan to fall. That's what caused Adam and Eve to fall. And it keeps us from accepting God's covering and just keep on adding our own layer of fig leaves in hopes that one day God will accept us because of what we've done and what we've accomplished. So my call to us is that we would quit hiding, that we as a church would be comfortably exposed in our sins, that we'd be real with each other and say, this is who I really am. This is where I'm really struggling. This is the, this is the hill that I just can't climb. And to be honest with God, because he knows our hearts anyway, and cling to Jesus as our covering. Jesus is the only one who can give us the perfection that we need, the life that we need, the peace that we need. Do you know Jesus? If you don't know Jesus, then we, we don't know this relationship with God. We don't know this kind of peace. Next week, we're going to look at the world's first birth. Two, two sons come into the world, and we're going to see how quickly things go from bad to somehow even worse. Let's pray. Father God, I just want to confess that we, that I am a sinner, that I just do not deserve, I do not deserve a second chance. I, I, the only thing I do deserve is, is your wrath and your eternal punishment. Um, and, and Father, I, I confess how often I, I try to hide from other people and pretend like everything's going well. And I know there's brothers and sisters in this room who resonate with that. And God, I just pray that, that we would lay down our pride and in humility admit the sinners that we are, and that we need Jesus. That we'd fully throw ourselves at your feet, accepting nothing but his blood and his covering for us. And it's a horrible thing to think about death and to think about what our sin has, has done to us and, and the way we've spat in your face. But God, to think about the, the innocent lamb who did nothing, who did not deserve death, to take that in our place. 
And God, if there's anyone here in this room this morning who doesn't know Jesus like that, who, who, hasn't, who hasn't fully accepted his covering on their behalf, we don't know when you're coming back. And we don't, we're not guaranteed a tomorrow. May we not put off for tomorrow what needs to be done today. Let's redeem that time. Be real with each other. Come to Jesus. It's in his blood and in his name that we pray. Amen.